First Peter chapter one. Taking us a little while to get going in this book, but um, we're a few chapters into the or first few verses into the first chapter. We spent some time looking at Peter's greeting and introduction, and this morning we're going to move on a little bit to um, some practical advice that Peter has for Christians through things that all of us will undergo in temptation and trials. And so we're going to start at verse 3 and then read down to verse 7, just to kind of get a a head start, but we'll be focusing on verses 6 and 7 mainly today. So starting at verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. Let's have a word of prayer this morning together. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word, and as we now come before you and hear what you have to say to us as you speak to us from your word, Lord, I pray that you would just humble us, help us to have a spirit of attention and listening, and humility before you, so that we might learn and be uh, ready to receive that which your Spirit has for us. Open our hearts and minds, I pray, to give us understanding. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do his work in each one of us, that your word will not return void as you've promised. Lord, I need your help to speak. I need your Spirit, and so I pray for a filling of your Spirit, that you would give me power, wisdom, that you would give me the words to speak so that we might hear from you. We want to be challenged by your truth today so that you receive all the honor and glory. And Lord, we just give ourselves and our time now into your, into your, into your hand. And I pray that you would again use this for your purpose. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This, As we study First Peter, the beginning of the first chapter, Um, After his greeting, we spent some time looking at verses 3 through 5, which is the security we have in Christ. Because our salvation, our eternal inheritance is not something of this earth. It's not something that we can create ourselves. It comes in Christ. It's accomplished through his spirit, and it's held by the power of God. All of it is God's work we saw. And so that uh, gives us a security that the salvation and what's to come out of our salvation is going to happen. So it's an absolute thing for us, a promise, really, from God. And so Peter talks about that in verses 3 through 5, that security that we have because of God's power and because of God's work. And then in verses 6 and 7, Peter starts with the word wherein, and he's saying basically because we have this security in Christ, 
because we know that our eternal inheritance is secure by the power of God, that God will do his work, that God will fulfill his promises. He says, basically, knowing that, and then he goes on, we greatly rejoice. Now, we should rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, in the security that we know we can't lose it. And it's not because we're holding on to it, it's because God is holding on to us. That eternal inheritance is not something that we kind of hope and wish for, it's something that we definitely look forward to because it's an absolute promise. And so Peter here says, we greatly rejoice. So that should be the attitude of believers all the time, really, is that we rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Okay, rejoice in everything. Give thanks in everything. Why? Because we know God has got us. We're not going to be lost. He's not going to let us go. There's no chance that this promise that he's told us about the end of our salvation, this eternal inheritance, it's not going to happen. We know it's an absolute thing. And so that should be the attitude of believers is that we rejoice. But here in verses 6 and 7, he goes into a scenario, actually, where it seems to be a paradox, because he says, rejoice, and then immediately in verse 6, he says, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. And verses 6 and 7 focus specifically on the circumstances of suffering and temptation And yet, he still says, rejoice. And so in our minds, the paradox is that, well, in suffering, when things are not going well, when we're stressed and under under pressure, that isn't the time that we naturally rejoice. Those are the times that we grieve, that we are stressed. You know, that's the human response. It's difficult. And so Peter's telling us in the hardest times of our life, we're supposed to continue to rejoice. That doesn't seem like it fits. But that is the attitude of a Christian, because our security is in God, because we know that what we're experiencing in this life is just temporary. It's not real life. It's a shadow of what is to come. So we can continue to rejoice, even in the temptations and trials. And so Peter says, rejoice even in your trials, but there's more than that. He actually gives us uh, the substance of why he says this. He says at the end of verse 7, that though your your faith, basically the trial of your faith, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying here is not only that rejoicing should be the attitude of a believer all the time, but that that rejoicing in trials is the proof of our faith. That is what demonstrates to us that it's true faith, that we're truly trusting in God. And so Peter, I'm going to spend just a couple minutes talking about what Peter says about this paradox of rejoicing in trials, because faith is proved, it's demonstrated in our rejoicing through every circumstance. And he focuses here specifically on these trials and temptations that we face in life. Because a faith based on the absolute assurance and power of God to keep you in his hand is, again, the proof of it being genuine, and it exhibits itself in rejoicing in those circumstances. 
And so when Peter says that we can rejoice in trials and temptations, he's giving us a demonstration of the proof of our faith. The word he uses here is a Greek word, agaliao, okay, and I won't quiz you on that afterwards, but the word means to jump with joy. And so Peter literally is saying the demonstration of true faith is that when you are tempted and when you are tried in those suffering times, we jump with joy. Now, again, that doesn't seem like the natural response, and it's not. That is the response of the Spirit in us and of true faith in God. That may remind you of Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' first sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. In verses 11 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. There's the trials and temptations that Peter's talking about. And Jesus said the same thing, blessed are you when you undergo those things. And then he goes on in verse 12 in chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And I can't wonder if as Peter's writing this introduction to this book, and he starts talking about rejoicing in trials, if his mind went back to that message by Jesus in Matthew 5. When Jesus says, when people are against you, when circumstances are against you, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That word rejoice that Jesus used means to be full of cheer. It's actually a different word. It's kairo. It means to be full of cheer and be happy. But Jesus didn't just say rejoice, be happy. He said, be exceeding glad. That's the same word that Peter uses, agaliao. And so if Jesus says, even when everybody's against you, when people are falsely accusing you and the whole world is coming down on you, jump for joy because great is your reward in heaven. And that's what Peter's referencing here. We can rejoice in trials because we know we have a greater reward coming, that eternal inheritance that he just talked about in verses 3 through 5. So that's the kind of joy in the midst of trials and suffering that a true faith demonstrates. Now, I want to talk about the nature of these trials that Peter uses here because this gets interesting when we actually look at the the very words he uses. He uses two words, one at the end of verse 6 and one at the beginning of verse 7. At at verse 6, he says, when we are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The word temptations there is parasmos in the Greek, which is translated normally as temptation. And it is exactly what we think it sounds like it is, temptation to sin. That's what Peter's talking about. And so he says that we can rejoice even when we're tempted to sin. Now, how can that be? Those are times of stress for Christians. But Peter says, no, true faith is a time when we can rejoice even when we're tempted to sin. The word actually means those who are exposed to temptation to do wrong, and the purpose is to test our faith. Are we going to give in? It would be the spiritual equivalent of going to somebody who's on a very strict diet and putting in front of them a big piece of of chocolate cake and saying, don't eat that. Okay, that's what that word temptation means. It means we are exposed to temptation, and yet the proof of our faith is that we don't give in. 
And so Peter says that in verse 6. Then in verse 7, he starts and he says that the trial of your faith, that's a different Greek word. That word there is dokimion, I'm sorry, dokimion, which is translated as trials here. And this is more of the physical sufferings and the difficult circumstances of life, not necessarily temptations. But Peter intermixes the two because most of the time, it seems like it's in our most difficult times that we are tempted to have a bad attitude, right? To blame God. To say, God, I don't understand this. Fix it. And so we are tempted to do wrong as we undergo trials which cause us to suffer. And he says in those circumstances, both of them, whether they be together or separate, those are the times that reveal the true faith that we have because even in those kinds of situations, we can rejoice. So both of these words are about testing the substance and strength of our faith, and they do it in different ways. Now remember, God doesn't test our faith so that he can see what it is. He already knows. He tests our faith so that we can see what it is. And more likely than not, we think our faith is strong until we get in these situations, and then God is saying, see, you're not as strong as you think you are. He's not trying to put us down. What he's trying to do is show us how much more we are dependent on him than we think we are. We are helpless. We can't resist temptation on our own. And Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, to him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. It's when we think we're strong enough to resist temptation, that's when we get in trouble. And so Peter says here, this is the test of your faith. Are you truly trusting in God for everything? Temptation will show that. And then suffering will show that. And it's not for God's understanding of our faith, it's for our understanding of our faith. Now, Peter uses four words here to describe the trials that we will undergo in verse 6, okay, or these temptations. He says, we greatly rejoice, and first phrase here, he says, though now for a season. So these temptations and the trials come for a season. And this is one of the reasons why we can rejoice in trials, because we know that they're not permanent, Right? Now, in the first sense, we know they're not permanent because of the internal inheritance he just told us about in verses 3 through 5. We are going to leave this earth someday. We are going to vacate this body. And all the pain and all the suffering and all the discomfort and all the stress that goes with it. And that's all going to be left behind when we go to heaven. In heaven, it's going to be perfect peace. Perfect bodies. No pain. No sorrow. No tears. That's what we have to look forward to. And so even as we suffer now and as we go through temptations to sin now, we can rejoice because we know there's a day coming. He just talked about it in the last couple of verses that none of that is going to be there. And so we know that it's just for a season, just for a little while. And then even though we experience some of these temptations and trials on earth, they're not permanent, most of them. Now, I'm not going to say that about all temptations or about all trials because Paul, remember, had a thorn in the flesh. And Paul went to God three times and he begged, basically, God 
Please remove this, this thorn in the flesh from me. And what was God's answer? He said, no, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now that answer is the same answer that God gives to us sometimes. As we pray and we ask God, please remove this temptation or please remove this trial, this suffering that I'm going through. God may remove the temptation. He may remove the suffering. He may heal us physically and spiritually in that way. But he also may choose to keep those things in our lives to continue to test us, to continue to build us, to continue to teach us that we are totally reliant on him. And again, the the answer he gave to Paul is the same answer he gives to us. My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, I want you to think about this. As, Paul, as Peter talks about the temptations that we undergo, he says that we are tempted, though now for a season. But then the second phrase he says is, if need be. If need be. That means that our temptations are necessary. Not just the suffering, but the temptation to sin is necessary. It's a part of God's will for us. Now, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay? So we're praying for God to help us to avoid temptation. But that doesn't mean God will never let us be tempted. That is part of God's plan for us, is to expose us to temptation. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about when Jesus was ready to begin his ministry. It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and there in the wilderness, at his lowest human point, other than being on the cross, one of the weakest points in Jesus' life, after fasting for 40 days, Satan came and tempted him three times. Now, it doesn't say that the Spirit of God was with him. It doesn't say angels were there helping him. It says Satan tempted him. And it actually says Satan took him to the temple. So God allowed Jesus in his flesh to be tempted by Satan for a purpose. And Satan or, or Christ resisted that temptation through the power of the Spirit and using the Word of God. And so he becomes the perfect example for us as people that we are exposed to temptation. That's part of God's will for us because it shows where our faith is. Now, unfortunately, we don't always follow the example of Christ because temptation comes and in our flesh we give in and then we realize, well, my faith isn't as strong as I thought it was. That's when we fall. And so God uses those times when we fall into temptation to teach us about ourselves. And that's what Peter's saying here. Those temptations are necessary to continue to teach us that we aren't as strong as we think we are. Remember, this is Peter. And if you go back just a few years before this, when Christ is still on earth, before his crucifixion, Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, including Peter, about his, his purpose. And, P, and Jesus says, you know, I must go. It's necessary for me to go and die on the cross. And Peter says, no, you're never going to die, Lord. You're God. You're the Son of God. You're not going to die. There's no need for that. 
And then Jesus turns to him and he says, well, all of you are going to forsake me. And Peter says, no, I will never, never forsake you. Even though they take me to death, I will never turn my back. I will never forsake you. And then literally, not long after that, Peter is hiding by the fire, kind of shielding his face within hearing distance of the Lord as he's tried. And Peter denies him vehemently three times. Peter knows what he's talking about when he talks about temptation. We're not as strong as we think we are, and that's why God allows that to continue to show us how much we need the Lord, how much we are dependent upon his spirit in our lives. And so Peter says temptations are necessary. Trials are necessary. We need to suffer. God knows that. C.S. Lewis said, pain and suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. It's the way God gets our attention. And many times it's only in our suffering and in our pain that we finally turn to God and say, I can't do this anymore, God, I need you. So it's necessary, Peter says. God uses troubles and trials for a number of reasons in our lives. It's to remind us of our limitations and humble us as believers, to wean us away from worldly things, to point us to heaven, to teach us that God's blessings outweigh the problems and pain of life, as Paul said. These these light afflictions can't even compare to the glory that awaits us. God uses troubles and trials to chasten us for our sin, to remind us that this life is not the only life there is, that there is a life beyond this, and to help us in strengthening our spiritual character. There's lots of reasons why we need trials and temptations. And so Peter says, if need be, when they're necessary. And those things are necessary. Peter confirms this later on in this book in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you through those trials. So this is God's work in us, those trials, even the temptations, the exposure to tempt, the temptation to sin is part of God showing us that we need him and how much we need to rely on him for everything. Warren Wearsby says it this way, he says, we do not always know the need being met, but we can always trust God to know and to do what's best in us. See, that's the test of faith. I don't get it, God. I don't understand. I don't see what you're doing here. But I know you are all wise, and I know you will do what's best for me, and so I absolutely trust you in this. And in that, I can rejoice that God is in control. See, there's where the rejoicing comes, when we submit to God's purpose. And so we, our trials and temptations are necessary, Peter says. And then he uses another phrase. He says, you are in heaviness or weariness in verse 6. He says, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That means that suffering causes distress. Now, does God want us then to be in distress and pain? And the answer has to be yes. And again, we talked about the reasons. To get our attention to teach us things, to show us that this life, this flesh, all the things of this world is not all there is. But God uses pain. And he's saying that trials and temptations always bring a measure of pain to some degree. And it's profitable for us. Now, it could be physical pain, mental anguish, 
sorrow, grief, disappointment, anxiety. Those are the things that we feel when those temptations and trials come. And Peter says, that's a necessary thing. It's only for a little while, but God knows that pain is important in our lives. It's not because he wants us to suffer and be miserable. It's because he wants us to see him, to go to him. I've said this before, but it seems like anytime we have a major catastrophe, whether it be you know, a natural disaster through the weather or you know, some terrorist act where somebody's killed, people all of a sudden in that tragedy start to pray who never have prayed before. Why? Because it's in those moments that we realize our human frailty and we can't do it ourselves. And so God allows the, that kind of circumstance, that pain and suffering, to drive us to him. God wants us and uses that distress and pain in our lives. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen, David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Again, there's the test of our faith. God allows us to have that pain so that we will trust him to deliver us. Psalm 78, 34 and the psalmist is talking about um, God's working with Israel, and he says, when he slew them, then they sought him. Again, see, there's that pain that drives people to seek God where, where they otherwise wouldn't. Psalm 119, David says in verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. It's good for us to be afflicted. And in John chapter 9, when you get up to the time of Jesus, his disciples are walking with Jesus. They meet the blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples look at Jesus and said, well, we're going to assume that he was born blind because of somebody's sin. Was it his sin or was it his parents who sinned? And Jesus said, it's not about sin here. Neither one has sinned, he said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Sometimes God allows us to have pain and suffering just so that he can demonstrate his power and glory through our lives to others. John 11 tells us the story of when Lazarus dies. And if you know the context, the news comes to Jesus early when Lazarus is just sick. And he's just a couple days away, and he hears that Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't leave. He stays there for a few days. And his disciples are wondering, what's going on? Lazarus is sick. I don't understand why Jesus isn't going. And finally, he says, okay, let's t- it's time to go to Bethany. Let's go. And when they get there, Lazarus is already dead and has been dead for three days. And the disciples are asking, why didn't you go? Why- you-, you could have healed him before he died. Now he's dead. It's too late. Why did you wait? And Jesus said, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not here to the intent that you may believe. See, he didn't want them just to understand his power to heal sickness. He wanted them to understand his power to raise the dead. And many times in our lives, we don't understand why God allows things in our life. But it's for his power to be shown in us. Now, I can't promise you that God's going to raise you from the dead in this life. But Peter said we're all going to be raised from the dead to that eternal inheritance someday. So if God allows you to go through that pain and suffering and you die, again, it's for his glory. 
It's not for our understanding or our purpose. It's for the glory of God. So we don't know what God is doing. But there's a reason. It's for a short time, and it may be our short time on this earth until we die. But God has a purpose in all of that pain and suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read this this morning. It says that God is the God of all comfort, and we experience the comfort of God when? In our pain and suffering. If we never had pain and suffering, we would never experience the comfort of God to its fullness. And so God uses that to reveal himself to us. So God's plans for pain in our trials because he knows that it's best for us. And then Peter uses this last phrase in verse 6. He says manifold temptations. That word manifold means various kinds, okay? All working into one. If you're a mechanic and you understand the parts of an engine, there's something called the manifold, okay? The exhaust manifold has several pipes that come out of the engine for the different cylinders, and then they all join into one to go out the one exhaust pipe in the back. It's called a manifold, okay? It means many into one. And that's what Peter is telling us here, these manifold temptations. There's many different kinds, many different varieties. The word literally means many different colors, okay? But he says they all work for God's one purpose. Now, we looked at these words already, temptations to sin, parasmos, and that is to prove our commitment and faith in God to not sin. And then the trials, the dokimion, that's the physical stress or pain and suffering to demonstrate the strength of our faith in trusting God no matter what the circumstance is. And he says there's many different kinds. And that means not all of us are going to experience the same thing. We're all going to have our own set of trials. We're all going to have our own set of temptations. Many are common to us, but it's not going to be the same for everybody. And with those different colored trials and temptations, it's the same grace of God that brings us all through all of them. It's interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 4, you go ahead a couple of chapters here in this same book, and Peter is referencing the grace of God. And in four, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Same word, meaning God's grace shows up in many different ways, in many different scenarios. It's not always the same, but it's the same grace of God. And it's perfectly applied to each one of our unique different situations. But our problem is we don't trust God. And that's what God is exposing. Even in his grace, he's showing us, you're not trusting me. You're not relying on me. You don't have a true worship of me. And so I'm going to allow you to go through these things to drive you back to me. That's God's grace. And we're here in 1 Peter 4, he calls us stewards of God's grace. It's not just for us to experience God's grace so that we are comforted, as we read this morning. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we experience the grace of God in comforting us so that we can comfort others. So that manifold grace of God is not just applied to us, but it's also applied through us. 
And again, that tells us that our trials and temptations are not just for me. It could be because someone else needs to experience the grace of God, which we have now experienced through our own problems. We may not need that lesson, but somebody else might. But until we experience it, we can't help them. And so his grace is manifold. Again, God told Paul, my grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that same answer applies to all of us. God's grace is sufficient, no matter what we face. So God knows exactly what's happening in our trials and temptations, and he has a perfect and necessary purpose in all of it, even in allowing us to be tempted by sin. God has a purpose in that. And those things that are painful even to the breaking point, God's purpose is is secured in that. And Peter goes on in verse 7, and he says, The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Here's the proof. Okay, He's told us about the different trials, about the temptations that we're going to encounter. He tells us what kind they are, why God allows them, and now he says, here's the proof. All of these hardships and persecutions and temptations to sin are to prove if our faith is true and genuine and set in God alone. And it's not, okay, God, I trust you for salvation, but I'm going to take control of the rest of my life. God will use his temptations and trials to teach us that we need to let go of those things as well. Okay, God is not the co-pilot of our life. God is the pilot. We're just a passenger. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're not even a co-pilot. We're not to be standing there or sitting there beside God, and he starts taking a left turn, and we go, well, you know, I think right would be better. We're a passenger in this life. That's what God has set it out to be. We're along for the ride. And Peter says, here's the proof of your faith. Are you going to continue to rejoice and be glad and jump for joy when it seems like God took a wrong turn? Because that's when our faith truly is tested. The faith that endures through the hardest trials and the most intense temptations is the faith that is truly saving faith. Now, that doesn't mean just because we have doubts and we fall to temptation that we're not saved, okay? When we're saved, we don't automatically become perfect and sinless. Our soul is redeemed. The body has not been yet. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those are the things that drag us down, according to 1 John. We give in to those temptations. But it's how do we respond as the pattern of our life? Is it a continuous giving into temptation? Not just because we're too weak, but because we enjoy it too much. We'd rather have the pleasure of sin for a season than the security of God and salvation. Is it the pattern of our life to give into temptation? When those trials come and we experience pain, do we continually complain about it? And in our prayers, rather than rejoicing and thanking God for the opportunity to grow and trusting him, is it always just, God, 
take this out of my life because it's not what's supposed to be here. See, Peter says that's the proof of faith. How do we respond to all these things? Now, we have many examples of godly men in Scripture who seem to fail the test of faith. Okay, And when I say godly men, I mean men that all of us would recognize. Moses, considered literally to be the greatest prophet of Israel, led the people of children out of Egypt, all through the wilderness. And yet at a crucial moment in his leadership, when God wanted to teach the people about trusting him, God told Moses, I want you to talk to that rock and water will come out. And because Moses was angry and frustrated with the people of God, he went up and hit it with his staff. God still provided the water. But God also came to Moses and said, you failed that test. And so you're not going in the promised land. Moses failed, but he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. David, over and over in the Psalms, you can just read this, just open the Psalms and randomly pick them out. In almost uh, every other one, it seems like David is crying out to God, asking why God has forgotten him, why God allows evil to go rampant when all the righteous are being punished and being persecuted. And he's saying, God, you've forgotten us. The lack of faith. But then God reminds David. And at the end of most of those Psalms, David says, but I will trust in you. I will learn to follow your way. Okay, and he's the one that I read from Psalm 119. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Elijah, again, another great prophet of Israel. Okay, remember the, the big battle on the, on the top of Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal were there and Elijah was all by himself. And he challenged them, offer a sacrifice to your God and see how it works out. And then they're nothing, hours and hours of the prophets of Baal marching around and calling to their God and cutting themselves and screaming and all the rest of it, nothing. And then Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. And he puts the sacrifice on the altar, and then he says, okay, go get water and just drench everything. And they kept pouring water and pouring water in the ditch around, and the thing, the, 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 the altar, the sacrifice, the wood, everything was soaking wet. And then Elijah knelt down and prayed, and God sent fire from heaven and didn't just devour the wood and the sacrifice, but it devoured the altar and the water and everything around it. That great victory... And then shortly after that, Elijah is seen running into the wilderness because he's scared for his life, saying, God, I'm the only one left. Take my life now because it's not worth living. We all fail the test of faith. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in our faith. In the, in the Gospels, the disciples, they were the foundations of the New Testament church. Their teachings are right here in our scripture. And yet on so many occasions, they failed that test of faith. As Christ was teaching them in the boat, Christ is there with them in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. The water starts to churn. The storm comes up. They panic. They're afraid for their lives, and they wake up. Jesus says, don't you care about us? They failed the, the test of faith many times. Peter denied Christ. And yet Peter here is telling us God uses those things to prove our faith. It's not whether we fail. It's whether that failure is a pattern. Does that define us? Or is our faith rooted in God so that as the pattern, and there are exceptions, but that pattern is we trust him 
And Peter says in trusting him, the pattern is we learn to rejoice in the hard times. That's the proof of real faith. And so Peter's not saying that we must have perfect faith. He's saying we must have enduring faith that as a pattern of life praises God through the hardest times of life. And he uses this illustration in verse 7 of, of gold being refined in a furnace. He says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about gold mining, okay, most gold is not found just by walking out into the woods somewhere or in the mountains and then picking up large nuggets of gold. That has happened, but it's rare, okay? Most companies that are gold mining companies have to dig into the earth with heavy machinery. They have to drill into the side of mountains and into rock. And then they extract that rock where they think that gold might be. And then they draw all that gold ore or rock and earth and all the stuff that they dig up. And then they run it through the machines and the machines crush those rocks and pieces of ore down into small pieces and almost into a fine grit, and then they put that grit into a a, a smelter or crucible, and it melts all that stuff down, and what comes out is the gold. And then they scoop all the rest of it out of there, and then what's left is pure gold. Now, it used to be that in the old days, somebody would say, well, how do you know when the gold is as pure as it can get? And they would say, when the man testing it looks in and he can see his face in the gold and he knows that it's as pure as it can be. Think about what Peter said here. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Is God looking down at the gold that is being processed in our life and can he see his face the image of Jesus Christ in our life. That's the goal. We're not supposed to look like a good version of us. We're supposed to look like Jesus Christ. And God is going to continue to process that gold ore of our lives. There's that vein of faith, that gold faith in our lives, but it's not perfected yet. Now, when we get saved, think of it this way. Our faith is in raw form. It's faith ore, like gold ore. There's faith there, but it's not mature. It's not complete. It's not pure. And so God has to take that faith ore of our lives and run it through the crusher a few times to get all the rocks and dirt out of it. And then he's got to take what's left of it and put it in that crucible or the smelter and melt it down in fervent heat. There's the pain. And what comes out of that? Pure faith. That's what God wants to bring us to, pure faith. And so Peter's saying all of this stuff that we have to go through, all of the trials, even the temptation to sin, is for God to break us down, to get out of our lives all of that extraneous material, all of that dross, so that what's left is pure faith in him. That's his goal. Now, that material that he removes, that's called our flesh. The desires of what I want my life to be. The way I want to live. 
the things I want to think about, the priorities that I want to make important. That's what God has to remove. When John the Baptist was on earth, he said, he must increase, talking about Christ, but I must decrease. Paul, in um, Galatians, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, it's not me anymore. God has removed me. And so any life that I have is just Christ living through me. And so I have to have pure faith that Christ and God are going to do exactly what should be done through me. And whatever I have to go through, I have to go through, and I'm going to rejoice in those trials. And you know the life of Paul was not easy. In fact, when Paul was converted, God came to Ananias. Ananias was a prophet. He came to Ananias. He said, I want you to go to meet this Paul. He says, I've just converted him, but I have a need to tell him of all the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's introduction to Christianity. And that's basically what Peter is telling us here. God has a need to tell us all the things that we're going to suffer to show us how important those things are to accomplish his work in us in bringing us to a true and pure faith in him. So all of that purifying process, the crushing, the melting us, the trials, the temptations of life, that all reveals whether that faith is true or not. That's how people test gold, melt it down, There's something called iron pyrite. It looks like gold. It's fool's gold. That doesn't melt down. It's dross, garbage. Only pure gold melts down and becomes pure. And so that's God's purpose. God is doing his work in us to remove everything that's not compatible with true faith in him. So here's the question we might ask. Why does God allow Satan to continue to tempt believers after we're saved? Now you have your answer. Because it's God proving our faith, testing our faith. Not so he can see what it is, but so we can see whether it's genuine faith or not. Now, there is something called false faith. Paul referred to it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, unless you have believed in vain. Jesus referred to false faith in the parable of the sower, the stony ground, the thorny ground. And it's interesting that he picked these phrases and then Peter used these two words here. Remember, the stony ground, the seed takes root, the plant springs up, but then the sun comes out and beats upon it and the plant withers and dies and doesn't yield any fruit. Stress, pressure, there's the trials of life. They burn us out. If the trials of life drive you away from God, you never had true faith. Jesus also said the thorny ground, right? The thorny ground, the seed went in, the plant sprung up, but the thorns represent the cares of the world, and it choked that plant out, and it did not yield fruit. Temptations. That's the temptations of the world. So Jesus gave us the basis for what Peter is saying right here. If temptations destroy us and drag us into the pit and we can't get out of it, is your faith true? If the stress and the trials and the pressure of life 
cause you to run away from God and blame God and curse God? Is your faith true? Jesus said no. It's not, it looks like life. It might seem like life, but there's no fruit, so it's not life. It's not true faith. If we walk away from God or stop trusting him because of trials and temptations, then our faith is not true saving faith. That's what Peter is talking about. Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Peter said, No man, I'm sorry, Jesus said, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once we commit to Christ, there's no going back. If we go back, Jesus says, that's not faith. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, the writer says, It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame. That's not talking about losing our salvation. That's talking about a person who seems to be living the Christian life and has all the evidences outward of following the Lord, and yet when trials come, when temptations come, they fall away. It's impossible, it says, to renew them to repentance. That's a false faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, Same idea, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that means giving up on God because we aren't getting what we want, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Those are not talking about backslidden Christians, folks. When the Bible talks about fiery indignation, and judgment that shall devour the adversaries, that's talking about judgment in hell. That means they're not saved. And so ultimately, what Peter's talking about here, number one, is are you truly saved? Trials and temptations will reveal that to you. How do you respond? Do you rejoice? Are you learning to rejoice in those trials? That's the proof of our faith. When everything else is cleared off the table of your life as you stand before Christ, what will be left? Look at how Peter ends verse 7. That it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, after God crushes you, melts you down, and pours out what's left, is it going to be that pure gold of faith? Or is all that we have to bring to God that he's going to find is all of the fake gold, all of the materialism, all of the fleshly lusts? Because then we're left with nothing. God will get rid of all that. And when we stand before Christ at the end of our lives, the only thing he's going to look at is, Where's the gold? Where is that gold of pure faith? That's all that matters. Because it's that pure gold of faith that not only brings us to salvation, but it keeps us living according to God's will for us through our lives and rejoicing, knowing that God's in control even through the worst times of our lives.
I'm afraid that many people are going to stand before Christ thinking they were fine because they believed. They walked an aisle. They said a prayer. And Jesus talks about those kinds of people. They have no true faith. Their lives don't change. They're not new creatures. They blame God. They complain to God all the time. Their lives don't look like what Christ wants them to look like. And it's interesting because Jesus says, there are going to be those who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did great works in your name. We cast out demons in your name and did many mighty works. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Romans 8, Paul says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together with him. If we're not willing to endure the suffering by God's strength and by God's grace, if we don't care about resisting temptation through God's strength and through God's grace, if the pattern of our life is just to give in, to do what feels good, to do what pleases me, there's not going to be any glory and honor at the end of life. But Peter tells us, if it's true faith, tried by fire, crushed in that machine, and pure gold comes out, it will be unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. If we live now for the praise and honor and glory of our Lord through faith in this life, no matter how hard it gets, then the Lord will someday praise us to his Father, give us honor in his kingdom, and bestow upon us glory that can only be revealed in his eternal kingdom. And that's what Peter's saying. As we live to the praise and honor and glory in this life, that's what we will receive in the life to come. But it all has to be to the Lord and from the Lord. God promises that this life is not going to be easy for us. Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. If we are true believers, we have to expect that we will suffer because God tells us it's going to happen, and he wants it to happen to accomplish his purpose. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We know it's coming. We all are going to experience it. We all have experienced it. God intends for us to experience trials and temptations because he knows it's good for us and it will accomplish his purpose in us if we submit to him in faith. The question is this. How do you respond? How do you respond to the temptation? How do you respond to the trials, the suffering, the pain? Peter says if you can learn to rejoice in the worst of it, that's the proof that your faith is true. But if all you do is complain and blame God because your life isn't what you want it to be, there's no glory, there's no honor, there's no eternal inheritance at the end. There's just 
fiery judgment forever. True faith exhibits this paradox of rejoicing in trials because we know God is good. God always is good. He does everything that is good, and all will work together for good according to God's will for us. May our faith be proven true as we continue to trust God through the worst of times. And may we rejoice not only that he is purifying us in this life, but that this life isn't all there is. No matter how much we suffer, we remember that there is a better life to come that is so much more than what we could ever experience here. And that's really all that matters. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Do you believe that God is faithful even in the hardest times of life? Do you believe that God has a purpose in that, in that he is good? Do you rejoice in those temptations and trials? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the challenge you've given to us. And Lord, it's hard to hear that we know we're going to suffer. We don't want to have to go through that. And yet you know it's necessary. And Lord, it just perplexes us even that you would allow us to continue to be tempted to sin. We, want, we know that you've called us to be pure and holy in our lives. And it just seems like putting us in front of that chocolate cake when, we, when you know we're hungry is just too much to ask of us. But Lord, you know that it's a test of our faith. Help us to see how weak our faith is and how much more we need you in our lives. How much we neglect you through the good times that you drive us to yourself through the bad times. Lord, we want you to receive the glory and honor and we know now that this is the only way that it will be accomplished in us. So help us to learn to rejoice no matter what you're doing in all circumstances because we, are, we know that you are a good God who is doing what's best for us. Thank you again for this lesson. Help us not to forget it, but help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, so that we aren't deceived about what we truly are in your sight. Thank you again for your lesson. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is an insert. You'll find that in the pew in front of you.